Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but uh, often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK centric on the big issues of the day. We're going to talk today about politics and geopolitics and the impact that they have. How important are they in terms of the financial markets, which are our primary interest? And how much attention should we pay to these headline-grabbing issues that come up all the time, or regularly, it should be said? So, a number of examples at the moment, a lot of them involving the activities of the Chinese in the world and the uh, response that the allies in NATO, the United States and uh, the UK and the countries of the European Union are all involved in these uh, issues. And it is one of the big issues of the day. But we're going to sort of range over a little bit of history as well. But shall we kick off, Peter? Um, I like to get your thoughts on the issue that came up last week in the media and involves uh, the United States, the UK and Australia, and also France. The first three countries, US, Australia and UK, have uh, signed an agreement, a collaborative agreement, which involves building nuclear submarines uh, for the Australians as part of a, a move to, if you like, strengthen the presence of these three countries uh, against the threat of China in the Pacific. The way they've done that is they have uh, cancelled a contract they did have with the French, who were going to supply Australia with nuclear submarines, and greatly upset the French by cutting them out of this arrangement. So I know, sitting as you are close to France anyway, Peter, what, uh, what is your reaction to that particular piece of news? Well, good morning, Jonathan. First of all, it's very nice to be back online after a relatively eventful and very hot summer, hot in all sorts of ways. I'm thinking about Afghanistan, which we can talk about later. So it's very nice to be back on stream. And I'm glad that you mentioned the AUKUS submarine deal with the US, the UK and Australia, because it has effectively created a lot of noise, but it's very young. Uh, this only came in the last few days, and it's very maybe premature to conclude whether it has any effect on the financial markets, which have been relatively weak lately. But the weakness, the late weakness, has little to do with this AUKUS arrangement and has more to do with lingering concerns about tapering and so forth. I think that this particular AUKUS deal, which is designed to protect Australia from the advances of China and the relationship between China and Australia has frozen completely in the last few months, essentially since the beginning of the COVID crisis, when the Australians demanded an official report into where the COVID virus originated from, suspecting that the Chinese let it escape, you know, in the light of some grand scheme to, to weaken the West. And of course, the Chinese were furious about that. So relations are at sub-zero temperature. And so what I think is that this has been a I'm not necessarily saying a storm in a teacup, but I think that the Anglo-Saxons mishandled this with regard to the French. And I think the French 
overreacted with regard to the Anglo-Saxons by recalling the ambassadors from the US and from Australia. I also notice that they didn't recall their ambassador in London. And the explanation there was that the UK element in this deal, the UK's position is like a sort of fifth wheel, a spare wheel on a wagon. And they're not the dominating party in this arrangement. And to my mind, Jonathan, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. There's been also there, the, the relationship between France and the UK is really not very good at the moment. And so whether this is a sort of little ping pong game between the two or not, is not important enough to discuss. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, there's a lot of grandstanding going on and there's a lot of politics and domestic politics around it. There is a presidential election in France coming up and it is rather you know, public humiliation for the French. And in the UK, obviously, after Brexit, there's been a lot of quiet satisfaction, shall we say, of the UK government that actually seem to be doing something towards this so-called global Britain slogan that they have, which is how we're kind of remaking our relationships around the world in the aftermath of Brexit. But I think those sort of things are fairly trivial. I hope so anyway. I think the French are affronted, but then they've been quite difficult with us. And so I think there's a little bit of quiet satisfaction to see Monsieur Macron, who uh, excluded us from uh, the Galileo, for example, military uh, arrangements for GPS connections in Europe. You know, there's a little bit of tit for tat going on, but it's, it's sort of domestic politics, I think, more than anything else. I do think, though, that the French have given this jive about how the UK is now just a vassal state of the US. But I mean, this is stuff that goes back to de Gaulle and everything else. We've been having these kind of, uh, you know, sparring matches for a long time. I think there is some substance to it, but um, it's not, I think, thing of global significance. I mean, you mentioned Afghanistan, and perhaps we might talk about that. And we might also then talk about what, in the context of China, what China has been doing in terms of its, uh, I can only describe it as an assault on uh, some of its more profitable sectors, which I think does have an impact on financial markets. So let's just talk about Afghanistan there and, and try and work out whether uh, what's happened in Afghanistan, whatever you think about the manner in which this has happened, whether or not it is a, an event of global significance. You know, the UK has been fighting in Afghanistan since I think 1850 was the first time that we got involved in Afghanistan and several times since then. But it's, I'm afraid, this very shambolic, badly handled withdrawal from Afghanistan, whatever you think about the merits of it, you know, has um, created a lot of headlines. But do you think it's of actually any greater global geopolitical significance that, that investors at least should be taking note of? Geopolitically, it could have ramifications. But investors, I don't think, are going to feel those ramifications because it's unlikely negatively to affect economic growth, world growth, or liquidity splashing on the market, which is still very much in abundance, or valuation of markets. So I don't think that markets are going to crash. If they were going to crash, they would have done already. So it's more the geopolitical security picture which has been undermined by the disastrous handling of the Afghanistan withdrawal, which Tony Blair called imbecilic and uh, John Major called insane. What I think isn't being given enough attention is the fact that the Americans left something like, you read different figures, but somewhere between 80 and 100 plus billion US dollars worth of hardware 
equipment. They just left it there. And of course, now all sorts of parties are all over these helicopters, tanks and guns and what have you in order to find out how they work and use them. So the least thing the Americans could have done is to have destroyed their hardware. And I think that the timing at the end of August, President Biden wanted that to coincide with the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 and wanted to show his voters that Afghanistan is now free of U.S. soldiers on the ground. And he was able to point to President Trump, who started this when he started talking to the Taliban last year. So in my opinion, the world security is very much undermined by this. Look at all the other countries that are crawling all over Afghanistan, and they're not countries that make you feel very comfortable. So I think so that geopolitically, from a security point of view and terrorism point of view, the world has become more of a dangerous place. But I think that the effect on investors and investors' portfolios will be completely neutral. Yes, I mean, there are humanitarian issues as well around this, but uh, unfortunately, you might say, or perhaps inevitably, they are not really factored in by the financial markets. It's nothing really to do with them, unfortunately, what what, uh, determines the economic uh, future for us. One has to feel that there will be people in Afghanistan who will feel deserted and will lose their lives as a result of this rather shambolic uh, departure. But I think you're right. In the short term, I don't see that there has any particular significance for global financial markets, uh, adopting a rather hard-nosed approach to this. But we may well see the consequences in due course, and we don't yet know what they'll be. You know, will there be more terrorism as a result of this? How will this affect the balance of power in the Middle East, the, the fragile situation between Pakistan and the West, for example, which is one of the major players in Afghanistan? and the Chinese and the Russians and so on. So I think it's going to be a complicated picture, but it has been a 20-year experience and it was you know, originally triggered by the 9-11 attacks, as you say. But if we, if we look around the world, again, I mean, there is some action recently by the Chinese which has had an impact on the financial markets directly, and that has been their decision to effectively to um, destroy a couple of sectors that have provided investors with significant returns in, in China the education sector being one, and the generally technology sectors where Chinese companies have uh, attracted a lot of support from Western investors. And uh, effectively, the Chinese government has basically put them out of business, or at least in other cases, you know, told them they can't make as much money as they have been making, no doubt for various reasons. The Chinese authorities have that of you, but it has had a significant effect. I mean, the China Investment Trust that I follow in the UK, they're all down by around 30% as a direct result of these actions by the Chinese government. And I think what is worrying is not just the, um, you know, the fact that they've actually uh, effectively put privately listed companies out of business in, that are based in China, but also the implicit threat that uh, they could do this at any time to any other companies that are trading in China and which investors have been very keen to invest in over the period. And of course, China is also a significant part now of the Emerging Markets Index. It's, uh, I think, about 40% of the Emerging Market Index is made up of Chinese companies or, or companies listed in China or have China as their main focus. Uh, and that therefore has a significant impact on anybody who has a, a global investment mandate. So uh, I think from a purely financial markets uh, perspective, that is a much more direct uh, challenge from the situation in China. And I wonder what you think about that, Peter. Yes, I completely agree. And that made me all the more surprised when I heard last week that BlackRock, 
is investing $1 trillion into Chinese assets, so bonds, shares, and so on, just at this particular point in time. They've clamped down on the educational sector. They've clamped down on the gaming sector. And gaming, of course, is an enormous industry. Enormous. I mean, it is difficult for you and me, people of our age, to understand how and why the gaming sector could have become so huge in a country like China, where they even have Olympic Games, gaming Olympic Games. So you can apparently log on to the Olympics as an observer and you can watch these gamblers and gamers exercise their activities. And so the Chinese clamped down on that. And the third area where they're clamping down is, of course, the financial services area. And all this, I mean, the gaming bit you could somehow sympathize with. The educational clampdown you you can not sympathize with. And all that is done because the Communist Party have decided that enough is enough. So they draw the line somewhere uh, in order to avoid capitalism in China getting out of hand. And it, it doesn't surprise me this. It had to happen sooner or later but it doesn't exactly instill confidence in the international investor. Hence, my surprise and what I heard about BlackRock. So I think that it is very bad news and is, of course, indicative of the way Mr. Xi Jinping is becoming more and more and more powerful, much more than his predecessors were. And he wanted to swing the pendulum back and he still wants to swing it back because his predecessors, notably the two last predecessors, allowed the state to relax its grip on the people and on the markets and on the economies. And so Xi Jinping has decided that enough is enough and he's taking back control. Personally, as an international investor, I find that very worrying because in conjunction with their political powers through the Belt and Road Initiative, I think that the China situation is a very good example, contrary to the Afghanistan situation, where the state has a very significant effect on an investor's portfolio. Very, very significant indeed. So I think that that needs to be watched with great caution. And I would think long and hard before making an investment in that area. Yeah, I can't disagree with you. I think uh, investors need to be very wary of this. I rather wonder whether though they will. I mean, I think, you know, Chinese investments have made a lot of money for people over the last five years. And we know that it was only last year that the the best performing funds or most of the best performing funds in the pandemic year were companies that were involved in technology sector, amongst others, but particularly the Chinese uh, investment trusts and funds that invested in Chinese companies. They were incredibly popular and delivered fantastic returns last year. But in my experience, there's been this initial sell-off, but I doubt rather much that it's going to deter uh, many investors from coming back into this. They've be already been told that they now look attractive, these funds. There's been a bit of an overreaction to the news and so on. But I rather agree with you. I think one should be very wary of what's happening there. The other side of the argument is that the Chinese are increasingly welcoming foreign investment into China through the stock market. They have have significant plans to expand that over the last few years. 
And, you know, the argument on the other side is, well, the more capital they rely on from overseas, the more they're kind of bound into the success of the capitalist system. And I think there's some truth in that as well. In other words, I think that, you know, it's difficult for them to reverse everything that's happened under the previous regimes. So I think you're right. I think people should be wary. But I, I rather suspect that in a year's time, when we talk about this, we'll find that, uh, you know, these Chinese investment funds are just as popular as they've, as they've ever been. Because it's a bit like the, you know, the boiling frog. I don't think people really realize the potential long-term significance of what the Chinese may do. I think it would only be something like, you know, as I think people are concerned about, the Chinese threatening to invade Taiwan. That would be, if you like, the culmination of all this uh, trends in within the Chinese uh, leadership. And that would be a crisis for, I think, all investors and indeed for the, for the West as a whole. I'm sure you agree with that. I agree very much with that because that would involve the superpowers. In other words, it's one thing analyzing the effect on local financial markets, the effects resulting from the activities of local governments. Now, you could also argue that China is already a superpower. You can't view it as a local government or local regime, if you like, like asking the question, what would the French financial markets do if the French government started interfering left, right and center? Yes, but that's not the same thing as the Chinese interfering uh, left, right and center because they're so big, so powerful and growing so much. If they invaded Taiwan, then the Americans are certainly not going to sit there and watch, which is, of course, one of the reasons why they're doing this AUKUS arrangement. And that would and how involve the superpowers. You could argue that it's not going to happen for the time being. I would argue that it would be wise to prepare for that because even if it happens in the next 10 years, the effect, in my opinion, would be very dramatic on financial assets. You know, you could argue that it would make the dollar's value explode, which in turn would have detrimental effects to the American economy and American exports. You could paint a sort of picture with all sorts of ingredients. So... I think we need to differentiate between geopolitics and local politics. Another example of the local political interference that we saw only a week ago was what the British Conservative government did with our tax rates and national insurance contributions for the employer and employee, as well as dividend taxation, uh, which they've all jacked up despite the fact that they had promised not to do that in their manifesto. The fact that he breaks his promise once again and reneges on his word once again, of course, doesn't surprise anyone anymore. But it is possible that that has an economic effect because raising taxes means reducing liquidity, which in turn could have a detrimental effect on financial markets. But that's, again, that's at a local level. It's like if the French government interferes in the French economy, what effect does that have on the French markets? I think that that example, the British example, coming hot on the heels of Brexit, which had very much a detrimental effect on the UK stock market from the time of the referendum in 2016. If you look at the external value of the pound and the stock market and so on, that has been detrimental. So to conclude, so to speak, on this thought process, we have to differentiate between geopolitics and politics, and we have to differentiate between the involvement of superpowers, which now includes China, which it didn't in the past, 
compared with anything that any one of these either superpowers or non-superpowers, um, any actions that they have interfering in the economy of their country. But you mentioned Taiwan, and Taiwan would certainly not go unnoticed by financial markets, and we really have to hope that it's not going to happen. We certainly do. I couldn't agree more with you, Peter, about the longer-term issues involving China, and particularly Taiwan. We hope it doesn't come to the actual point of a uh, invasion or some kind of uh, very provocative military action involving Taiwan. But it's going to be the kind of thing that's going to hang over us for many years to come, I think, this, this threat, because the increase in Chinese power is very significant, and it's going to require uh, adaptation. Uh, but I think history suggests that in the whole, the financial markets, they tend to kind of put some of these issues to one side until there really is some dramatic evidence of uh, intervention, which changes, if you like, the whole game. Looking back, we've seen lots of things. I mean, we've been observing what happened in Hong Kong. We've been uh, observing what's been happening in the Middle East. And yet, you know, the great bull market in equities goes on at the moment and bond yields remain relatively low, much lower than many people were predicting not so long ago. They've come back down again. And so there is this sort of general, uh, as far as the financial markets appear to be saying, is that actually the world is okay as far as investors is concerned. There's some local difficulties, but um, that tends to be the way it works. And then it's only when there's a dramatic uh, event of global significance that, that uh, it really changes the equation, if you like, for investors. I have to just quickly put the other side of view about uh, the UK market. I mean, it is true that uh, Boris Johnson has broken another promise. I mean, I think his argument was, well, he basically said that the pandemic wasn't in the manifesto either. The point being that they have to do something to repair the finances of the country. It has had a massive increase in debt as a result of all the schemes that have been employed because of the pandemic. And we have this long running issue about social care, which we've never satisfactorily dealt with. And you can certainly argue that uh, raising the tax rate as the government is proposing to do, will not necessarily lead to an improvement in the provision of social care. But there is a, there is an issue there which I think many people are sympathetic to. But it's not a positive development, of course. But then nor is the massive explosion in debt uh, and so on that we've seen in the UK and many other countries have seen as well. And it's not as if we're the only country in the world that's raising taxes at the moment or going to have to raise taxes uh, in due course. We have to look across the Atlantic to see what's happening in the in the US. But yeah, so I suppose the way to sum this up is, I mean, looking at the way that the financial markets have reacted to the things that have happened, I mean, do you agree with me that there is as yet no evidence that the financial markets are regarding what's happening in the world as a greater threat than there was, say, three months ago or six months ago? At the macro level, I would completely agree with you. At the micro level, I'll explain in a minute what I mean, it's a little bit too early to tell. I read that there are hundreds of British companies which were lent money by the government during the pandemic, but which are unable to repay the government and which therefore now find themselves with the government as shareholders. Hundreds of those. Now, of course, thinking back, one could have expected this to happen. And it's not only in the UK, it's in other countries as well, like Italy, France, and so on which means that the government interference at the local level, a government interference in the economy and in the private sector has been augmented by the pandemic. We've got to watch that very closely because 
at the macro level, the market shrugs its shoulders, but whether it can do that at the sort of more micro level will depend on how quickly the governments extricate themselves from the situation and reverse the situation. I'm not very optimistic on that particular front because there are so many political actions which are undertaken and which are apparently temporary and then they suddenly become permanent. So we need to see whether the governments are going to backpedal on some of these things. If I can just go up back to the big picture and we can maybe sum it up. I wanted to just read you two sentences that were written by my friends at Gavkal over the weekend, and which is this, I quote, Today's crippling shortage of semiconductors is the result of underinvestment, itself partly caused by the escalating US-China economic cold war of recent years, which discouraged investment in new capacity. Worsening energy shortages also follow years of underinvestment in hydrocarbon exploration and production, exacerbated by government pledges to promote carbon-free energy sources. End of quote. I think that the second sentence, the second topic about underinvestment in hydrocarbon exploration and the green energies and all the rest of it should be one of our next topics of our next podcast because it's a very interesting subject and highly important because everyone is talking about it from morning to evening. But the shortage of semiconductors as a result of the US-China economic cold war of recent years, which now has resulted in inflation figures being stubbornly high, which has not yet had a detrimental effect on bond prices and by extension on share prices, is something that is very much relevant to today's discussion and is something that we need to keep under observation very carefully in the months to come. I'm sure you're absolutely right about that, Peter, and we need to keep that under close review. And we will do in the podcasts that are coming up. I think that's all we have time for today. We've touched on a number of topics, but there's going to be plenty more to talk about, in particular after this uh, year when we've seen a very strong performance by the global stock markets without any significant correction. And we've seen bond yields come back down again where many people thought they'd go up. We may be that we're living in a bit of a fool's paradise. Who knows at the moment? There may be some reckoning to come with reality. But that's what we'll be looking at and what we'll be talking about in the next few episodes. Thank you very much indeed, Jonathan. I look forward to the next episode and all the best to you. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.